Well, I want to go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll continue in verses 17 and 18. We're also going to move um, to John chapter 3, Romans chapter 1, and Romans chapter 9. We'll be moving around a little bit. I'm going to deal with some Old Testament passages. I won't have you move there. I'll just give you some ideas from some of those Old Testament passages as we uh, continue uh, in, in, this, in this section. Verse 17 and 18, Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, the one true living and merciful God, God of grace, grace alone to sinners through your one and only Son, the Lord Jesus. We give you praise and honor and glory for who you are and all that you've made and done. We praise you for your new covenant through the shed blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for the work of your spirit that applies the new covenant and has been applying it even before it was fulfilled in your son Christ. What glory is given to you, great and wonderful and mighty God of all the ages. Lord, we bow before you this morning and ask your mercies upon our minds as we come to listen and to think through the truths of your word. We pray that these truths will be convicting and encouraging and they will give help to us. Lord, will you bring clarity in places that need that? And yet, even as we sit here, Lord, we admit that our minds will be at times distracted and we ask, Lord, that you help us to stay focused. We lift up those who are unable to be with us. There are several families still battling illness. You know of these difficulties, Lord, and we ask your mercies upon them. There are so many things happening all around us. We know of different families and individuals who are going through all types of trials and tribulations. But would you give us the strength to continue and the focus to continue to pray and lift these people up? Remind us of the importance of being prayerful uh, throughout the day. We thank you for a time that we can come together this morning even before we worship you in just a little while, that we can focus our minds on who you are and all that you've made and done, especially what you've done through your son, the Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. As we moved through the context of uh, these verses, 
Uh, we've been dealing with the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And we're coming to a place to start to draw near uh, to some important conclusions already in the end of chapter 2 uh, based on the deity and the humanity of Christ. And here in verses 17 and 18, uh, we're getting one of these conclusions. And this conclusion is going to be a theme that presses forward through the rest of the letter to Hebrews. And here the writer says in verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things. And that's where we focused last week was seeing this in the context of the humanity of Christ and his assuming flesh. And we, letter A, Christ assumed flesh to be made like his brethren in all things. And we began at that point to unfold just a little bit. It's hard in 40 minutes to talk about the active obedience of Christ and in fullness. But we gave a, a little bit of a picture of the importance of the active obedience of Christ uh, under letter A last week. And we... Sh hopefully saw how this was important to him being a merciful and faithful high priest. He came and he lived the law of God perfectly. Uh, there was absolutely no way in which Christ sinned, and yet he was tempted. And this was, as we had noted before, a part of his suffering. Uh, here, here is the very Son of God, uh, very God of very God, and very man of very man. He's on this earth, and... Here he is walking among men and women just like us and he's being tempted. And Satan himself tempts the Lord Jesus. Now, remember we talked about that over a period of weeks and we wanted to get a picture of how important that was to see that Satan himself uh, led the Lord Jesus out in the wilderness. The Lord Jesus willingly went and he was tempted there in the wilderness by Satan himself. And the Lord Jesus withstood all of that temptation and he withstood it perfectly. This is a part of his act of obedience. And he had to suffer through that. Had he not come to the earth, then the Son would have not had to suffer through that. But that was a suffering for the Son of God. And so we looked at that in its context somewhat to see the importance of him being a faithful and merciful high priest that he would suffer even in being tempted as he assumed flesh. But he also assumed flesh for the context of what we'll deal with this morning is looking at uh, propitiation. And that'll be letter B. Christ was made the only sacrifice for his brethren. Christ was made the only sacrifice for his brethren to appease the wrath of God. To appease the wrath of God. Christ was made the only sacrifice for his brethren to appease the wrath of God. R.C. Sproul once said, Man is bad, 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 and God is mad, mad, mad. Now, you don't often hear people or pastors say things like that. And um, even myself long time ago, years ago, said something to that effect, and I had someone get so upset at me talking about the wrath of God against man's sin. 
They were so bothered by that. But I think R.C. Sproul's right. Sin is to our most awful detriment. By our very nature, we are sinners because of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. And we are very good at giving ourselves a lot more credit than we're due. It's a natural part of who we are in humanity, born in this sinful nature, to try to lift ourselves up in some way before God to say, well, I'm not that bad. When the scripture says, no, we're bad, bad, bad. And the scripture does teach that God is mad, mad, mad. Well, we want to see this in context under letter B. The wrath of God due to sin is a prominent theme in scripture. The wrath of God due to sin is a prominent theme in scripture. Numbers 16, 46, Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put it in fire from the altar and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. We see here a picture of the importance of several ideas. One, there is first the idea of atonement. And it's a little bit sad to me because at different portions of church history, um, and this has arisen in different places, there's been pockets of this throughout church history, there tends to be this debate about the importance of atonement versus propitiation. And even sometimes some groups even take the idea of propitiation away and say it's only about the atonement. And most of the time when they're only dealing with the atonement, they only want to deal with what is the passive obedience of Christ. That is, Christ went to the cross, but they don't, they don't want to deal with the active obedience. That's kind of sad to me because the scripture gives us all these pictures. And even some sense in this one place here in number 16, we get elements of it. There is the importance here that the people have sinned against God. And Aaron is the high priest and he's told by Moses to get the censer and put it in fire from the altar and lay incense on the altar. Now remember the altar is this place of sacrifice. It's the, the type in the Old Testament of where the sacrifice is made to give the great symbol of the understanding of the, the need of the forgiveness of sin. And he tells Aaron, bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. Well, there's the idea of a substitution. Making atonement. That one would stand in the place. Psalm 106, 23, the psalmist gives a picture of this when he says, Therefore he said that he would destroy them, speaking of God and the sin of the people. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. There's the idea of atonement standing in the place. In Numbers 16.46, not only do you have the idea of atonement, but it gives the reason for the atonement for them by saying, for wrath has gone forth from the Lord. There's the two ideas together. That is, 
the necessity of atonement being made. There has to be something done. There has to be a, a work that is put forward. And at the same time, the reason is because wrath will be poured out. I hope to show you the importance of this word propitiation, not only uh, in several verses that use the word, but to, for you to see it in a broader context of the whole of the scripture. We are sinners. Someone has to pay the debt of that sin. If we pay the debt of the sin, then the wrath of God will be poured out on us eternally and there is no hope to change it. We will just be under eternal wrath. There has to be some atonement made. There has to be a sacrifice that is an atoning work for the sin. But the reason for that atoning work is because the wrath of God is going to be poured out on all unrighteousness. This is not one of those situations where we need to divide things up. We need to understand it in the both and. The atonement is important. And the reason the atonement is important for propitiation to be made. The sacrifice appeases the wrath of God. Ezekiel 7, 8 and 9. God is warning the people of Israel. Now... Now will I shortly pour out my anger on you. Hosea 9.15 For there I hated them because of the wickedness. Hosea 5.10 Speaking to Judah and all of the sins of the princes and the kings, the princes of Judah, for you I will pour out my wrath. John 3. You can turn there. John chapter 3. In the latter portion of the chapter, verses 22 to the end of the chapter, this is John the Baptist's testimony of the Lord Jesus. And in speaking of the Lord Jesus, verse 32, What he has seen and heard, and that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Here's one of the early pictures of the importance of the coming of the Son of Man to appease the wrath of God. If we want to talk about eternal life and the importance of eternal life, why would we need eternal life in a positive sense if there weren't a negative? And the negative is the eternal wrath of God being poured out on sinners. This earliest recognition here of John the Baptist giving this testimony of the context of the Son gives us an important uh, narrative to begin to see why the Son would come. 
Why would he assume flesh? Very God of very God and very man of very man. Why would he assume flesh? He lived a perfect life so his death would matter. The active obedience and the passive obedience. He lived a perfect life so that he could pay the debt. He lived a perfect life so that he would be the one and only substitute to stand in the place like the high priest would. To be a merciful and faithful high priest, the Lord Jesus lived a perfect life so that he could die the sinner's death. To pay the debt. To bear the sin. To have the wrath of God poured onto him. Romans 1, you can turn there. We mentioned this verse, uh, I don't remember if it was last week, maybe last week or the week before. Verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not just a problem that we're sinners. It's a problem that there is a debt that we owe to God. And it's a problem in that debt that we owe to God. There must be punishment. The debt is punishable. Um, you know, we, we understand this is in our system of laws, right? Um, when you break a law, well... We, we don't do as well today as we could or should. But the, there have been different times in history and in, even in the history of our country where we took law seriously. And if you broke a law and you were brought before the judge, you had to pay the debt, right? Um, you know, I don't know how many of you have ever been to court or seen court in person, but it's pretty... You know, you're sitting there watching these people get brought up uh, before the judge. And it, you know, it, it, it ought to be sobering. Now, uh, I don't know if you, if you can have a picture of that in your mind just for a moment to think about what it is to be brought before the court of God. And you and I to stand before God. God himself uh, revealed in the person of his son in judgment and to stand before him and what would our appeal be? Well, if we're by nature sinners and all sin is unrighteousness and by our own sinful natures our first and foremost inclination is to suppress the truth of the righteousness of God and we do that regularly when one is brought before God, what is going to be the statement to God? Well, I'm not as bad as you say that I am. The maker of the heaven and earth, the judge of all the cosmos, you're going to stand before him and tell him, well, you've made a mistake. 
He's perfect and holy. We're not. And we're going to stand before him and say, you've made a mistake. Is that going to be the appeal? Well, it might be for some, but it won't be a good one. Because you're basically telling the perfect God of all heaven and earth, sorry, you just don't get it. Or you don't think right. Or you have a problem. Or your brain, your mind doesn't work right, God. That's just not going to be a good explanation. Or is it going to be the appeal of, well, you know, I know I've had my problems, but I'm not as bad as that guy. Or is the appeal going to be, look around you, God. If you made all this, and then you allowed all these problems to happen, this is all your fault. That's what we do to authority anyway. We blame them. <laughs> yeah. And I've seen situations where that's what people do. That's not going to be the proper answer. Because if our answer is based on any of those kinds of answers, we will endure the wrath of God eternally. Even in Romans chapter 9, the context of salvation... And the, these sobering and unsettling arguments for the electing grace of God in the end of Romans 8 and Romans 9, we've looked at them and for some of us they've stirred our minds for years. But if you note, not just the, the idea of the electing grace of God but, but here's a note of the purpose for that electing grace. In verse 20, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. The very essence of electing grace is to deal with the wrath of God. God knows to save anyone, He has to elect them. And He knows He's electing them by His grace to save them. And what He's saving them from is His wrath. Paul is saying this is one of the purposes of God is to save people from His wrath. He knows He will have to pour it out on unrighteousness. Ephesians 2.3, Paul goes on to even declare very boldly, you were by nature the children of wrath. You were by nature the children of wrath. Colossians 3.6, 
the wrath of God comes on children of disobedience. And then there's the positive context of 1 Thessalonians 1. You can turn there. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. For the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. See, here's the positive context of that. There's no need for us to have a debate about uh, atonement versus propitiation. The context is both are necessary. Both are good. Yes. I got a good quote on that later. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. So he delivered us from the wrath to come. Here, here's the positive, right? We, we're, we have to deal with the negative, right? The negative is true. The wrath of God is real. It's going to be poured out on sinners. Why is the wrath of God real? Because man is bad, bad, bad. And God is mad, mad, mad. God has a real, actual, true anger in the context of His being. Thankfully, His anger is not the kind of anger that is in complete state of flux like our anger. It's a holy anger. It's pure and righteous in all of its ways. But that wrath being pure in all of its ways, it will be poured out on sinners in a way that you and I don't fully understand. For most of us, now some people are in worse cases than others, but for most of us, when we get angry, it's, it's, it's almost an immediate reaction to something, and we fly off the handle, and, and it's unthoughtful when we're angry. I mean, I know what I'm doing, but I just... Ugh. No, this is not that kind of wrath. God's not all of a sudden just going to go, I had it! No, the scripture says we're storing up the wrath. It's in the context of God storing up the wrath. He, he sees what he's doing. He knows. His anger will be put forth righteously in, in judgment. Now, he does display his wrath at other times in judgment in the context of providence and the earth. But as far as the final judgment is concerned, it's not going to be all of a sudden God just blew his top thoughtlessly. This is a part of the plan 
in redemption. And God is, through his son Jesus, rescuing us from his wrath. Now that ought to be really encouraging to know that God would be thoughtful enough in his holiness to rescue many, many upon many upon many throughout all of history to rescue them from his wrath. When in his holiness... There was no certain number. He could have saved one and said, here was my grace. And billions upon billions of people would have rightly been cast into hell. But here's the grace of God to many upon many. That's why it is an amazing grace because he's rescuing us from his wrath through the person and work of his son. Revelation 6.16, speaking of the context of the coming of the Lamb. John is giving a sense of the vision to hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Here's the great covering of the atonement, that one would be hidden from the wrath of the Lamb. Well, we've already mentioned this some, but this brings us to a question. How is the wrath of God appeased or satisfied? These are two important words. And most of the time you'll see the word satisfaction when you're reading on this. And I think that's probably a good word um, uh, and you'll recognize it. But how is the wrath of God appeased or satisfied? One pastor theologian said propitiation is that truth whereby God's wrath is turned aside and He is propitious or favorable toward us. Through sacrifice and substitution, satisfaction is achieved. Justice is the issue and it must be satisfied. God is pacified for man to be reconciled. Now, he gives a lot of context and ideas of the importance of propitiation. That's how the wrath of God is satisfied, is through propitiation. That's why our text here uh, in Hebrews 2.17 brings the word into, in, in before us to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, there are several New Testament texts which outline the importance and the necessity uh, propitiation. Uh, first of all, the word has the identification of mercy bestowed by a judge, Luke 18, 13. This is uh, the context of the publican praying before God in Luke 18. And the Pharisee uh, prays, you know, God, thank you that uh, I'm not like this person and I'm not like that person and I'm not like this and I'm not like that. And the publican just prays. And the, word, the, the same word we have in the Greek here for propitiation is the same word in Luke 18, 13. And the, the publican, he prays, be merciful to me or literally be propitious to me. The idea of propitiation is an, is an idea of mercy. It's mercy before a judge. 
Secondly, the word is recognized in the public sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Romans 3.25, speaking of the work of Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation. Whom God set forth to be a propitiation. How did He set Him forth? Well, He came to this earth. He assumed flesh. He lived a perfect life here on this earth actively seeking to do the will of the Father and He never sinned in any way. And, not either or, and He willingly went to the cross and He publicly was crucified. He became the one and only sacrifice. Nailed to the cross, His blood was shed and He Himself was set forth to be as Paul says, a propitiation. Here we have the idea not only of the mercy of God being shown, but this is the idea of the payment, the the debt being paid, Christ as the substitute. Through His atoning work, He is substituting us for Himself. Himself for us. He is put into our place, that place that we should be. He is put there. Thirdly, the word is used to explain God sending His Son to be the satisfaction for our sins. In 1 John, it's in two different places. 1 John 2.2 and then 1 John 4.10. In 1 John 2, 2, and He is the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4, 10, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the idea of satisfaction. He's to be the propitiatory work. He Himself, through His life, and His willingness to obey in every way, and then His willingness to go to the cross and to suffer the death, for Him to hang there and to bleed and to die, that His blood was shed once and for all as the once and only living sacrifice. It's very clear that John puts this in the context that through His shed blood, He is the satisfaction of our sins Through His propitiatory work, He satisfies that which God, that which God mandates. God mandates holiness. Christ is the only one who lived a holy life and then went and paid the debt in our place. One writer says, We are told that love and anger are incompatible. But it was love that prompted God to send His Son to remove His wrath. God loves, but He loves Himself supremely. The idea, as Scott brought up, of of love and wrath being incompatible in the context. God is love. Well, how can He also be wrath? Well, the Scripture doesn't debate the fact that He is love and He is wrath. 
He's just and holy in his wrath. He's just and holy in his love. From the very being of who he is, this gives us a context of why he would save any. It's out of his love. And yet, he's doing it out of his love because there is also the context of his wrath. It says, Paul said, he is both the just and the justifier. We have to recognize here that the love of God is the prompting work of him to send his son to remove his wrath. But why is he sending his son to remove his wrath? It's not just because he loves his creatures. It's because he loves himself supremely. It's for his glory. It's for his glory. God can only be glorified in and of himself. That's the fullest sense of his glory. He does not need you and I to bring him glory. He has glory in and of himself. The work here of propitiation is an important sense of understanding the love of God. He is reconciling all things to himself. We've talked about it before. When there's the need for reconciliation, what are we saying? There's a problem between two parties, right? This is one of those situations where the problem between, between the two parties is significant. Really significant. Because one is holy and pure in all, in all being, and the other party is not. And the other party is trying to say, hey, you need to accept me for who I am. And the very pure God says, no, I can't. How are those two parties to be brought together? There needs to be a reconciliation. It's only through Christ's active obedience, living the law perfectly, his passive obedience, going to the cross and dying the death, It's only through that that there can be atonement made. And when atonement is made, there can be propitiation. There can be mercy. There can be satisfaction. God is satisfied with what Christ did. And therefore, He is able to be reconciled to sinners. We've all seen situations with family or friends or people around us to where there was such huge uh, divide between them that it didn't seem like there would be any way for these parties to reconcile. Well, multiply that times a million or more, and that's the gap, the chasm, the divide between God and man. And Christ, in His propitiatory work, brings reconciliation. This is how he's the high priest. This was the whole point of the high priest in the Old Testament. One of his works was not only the context of being the one to oversee the sacrifice, but that he himself was standing in the place between God and man. And we see that identification here in 2.17. 
that he would be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. One writer says this word here means to propitiate, not to make atonement, and relates to putting away the divine wrath. When people sin, they arouse the wrath of God. They become enemies of God. One aspect of salvation deals with this wrath, and it is to this the author is directing attention to this point, speaking of the author of the Hebrews. Christ saves us in a way that takes account of the divine wrath against every evil thing. There's no need to have this great divide over atonement versus propitiation. We need to bring these together and see the context that these are all needed in reconciliation. We need to have the wrath of God appeased. This is part of the problem with our gospel teaching and preaching and ideas in the church today is we've done away with the wrath of God. We say so much about God's love, which let's not divorce ourselves from that. Let's talk about it. God is love. Amen. Hallelujah. And at the same time, God is wrath. We are in need of the discussion about God's love, but we are in need of discussion about God's wrath. There's a sense in which we must understand that this word propitiation in the context is bringing together the whole of the idea of atonement. It doesn't make atonement not necessary. It doesn't make atonement or the atoning work not useful. It just brings together the whole idea of the atonement and really brings together the whole idea of our understanding of the person and work of Christ. And I think that's why here in Hebrews, the Hebrews writer has spent all this time in chapter 1 telling us about the deity of the Son and in chapter 2 the humanity of the Son and he's bringing all that together to say without these truths, we don't say he's the Son of God and he's kind of God and kind of man. No, we say he's very, very, very God of very God, and he's very, very man of very man. And both of those truths are necessary for us to be satisfied before God or his wrath to be appeased that we would not die and have his eternal wrath poured out onto us. We need the whole of those things, and propitiation brings all of that together. Propitiation means God's wrath is satisfied through His mercy alone. Yeah, Scott. Yeah, and and, and that's the importance of thinking through the ideas of Romans 9, isn't it? Romans 8 9, when we talk about that electing grace. 
Um, at the end of the day, are, are we saying that every single individual on the face of the earth will not face the wrath of God in eternity? close with this thought from one writer. He says, in the context of Hebrews, the word atonement means that Jesus as high priest brought peace between God and man. God's wrath was directed toward man because of his sin. And man, because of his sin, was alienated from God. Jesus became high priest. And as high priest, once a year on the day of atonement, as the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement, entered the Holy of Holies. He sprinkled the blood, first for himself, then for the people, to remove literally or to cover the sin. In the same way, Jesus offered himself so that the shedding of his blood covered our sins. Thus, we might be acquitted, forgiven, restored. And in the words of Paul, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not the idea, is to have peace with God? The Scripture speaks of that in several places, having peace with God. Well, if God's not mad, then why do we need peace with Him? We are alienated from Him because of our sin, and through the Lord Jesus Christ, peace has been made through His propitiatory work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've been merciful once again to give us time in your word. Help us to think through its truths, to glory in it, and to glory in you. That we would honor you through your Son. All glory be unto him, according to the work of your Spirit. It's in his name we pray. Amen.